There is a teaching in the Bible that is so important that a church will either thrive by believing it or will die by rejecting it. That teaching is what we today refer to as the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. Luther said this, if this article of justification stands, the church stands. But if it collapses, the church collapses. Well, if Luther is right, and I think that he is, then what that means is that the teaching about justification, how a person can be accepted by God, be declared righteous in God's sight, is the most important teaching for this church. That what we need at Grace Baptist Church more than anything else is to make certain we are straight on what the Bible says about how a person becomes right with God. And that's not true simply for the church. It is also true for every person here. Every individual. The most important thing in your life for you to know and to be sure of is that you are right with God, not by anything you've done or anything you plan to do, but by Jesus Christ, whom you trust as Lord. This doctrine is so important. The Apostle Paul spends a significant amount of the early chapters of his letter to the church at Rome explaining it. He begins to do so in chapter 3, verse 21, when he makes the case or starts laying out the case about righteousness having been revealed from God. He has just obliterated any argument, any sense that you can find righteousness anywhere else other than Jesus. The righteousness God requires, you don't have, I don't have. You'll never get it by being religious. You'll never get it by doing good stuff. The only way you get the righteousness that you need, that God requires, is by looking to the place where God supplies it. And so Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 21, explaining that there is righteousness, not through the law, not through your works, not through being religious, but there is righteousness. And here's how it's found. Look, look at verse 21 of Romans 3, if you've got your Bibles open there, but just listen to it. He says, but now, no righteousness anywhere else, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In chapter 4, Paul takes Abraham as a classic example of what he's talking about. How to be justified through faith. Abraham, the father of the Israelite people. Abraham, the father of those who are faithful before God. We see in Abraham's life, as Paul explains it to us, that he was justified not by what he did, not by being religious, but by faith. Paul's point is that justification, having your sins forgiven by God, being declared righteous before Him, can only be received by trusting. That's it. If you're hoping in anything else, if you've got any other plan in your mind that surely God will accept me because... And you finish that sentence with anything other than what Jesus has done and my faith in Him. Then you desperately need to hear what Paul argues for in these early chapters of Romans. It is only 
by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. Only by faith that people can be declared righteous. So Paul uses the Old Testament patriarch Abraham to argue for justification. He does it in chapter 4 by making basically three arguments saying that it is through faith, not this. Faith, not that. The first argument is found in the first eight verses of Romans 4 where he uses Abraham and then brings in David as well to contrast faith to works. If you look at Romans 4, 3, 4, and 5, those three verses, you'll see him do this where he contrasts a gift that you receive versus wages that you receive. You receive wages by working and you get a paycheck. Paycheck. You receive a gift just by receiving. Somebody gives it to you. You don't do anything for it. You just receive it. He says that's faith. That's what faith is. It's the outstretched hand to receive the gift that is given by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's faith, not works. The second argument is found in verses 9 through 12 where he contrasts faith with circumcision. Because there were Jews in his day who thought, well, we're the people of God. We've got the sign on our flesh that we're God's people. It's circumcision. It's the circumcised and uncircumcised. That's how the world's divided. And Paul says, well, no. If you don't have faith, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised. And if you have faith, it doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. Because God accepts people not on the basis of their religious rituals, but on the basis of what Christ has done when we turn from sin and trust Him. The third argument is found in verses 13 through 17, which is our text for today. And in these verses, we will see how Paul contrasts faith to the law. And he does so once again in order to underscore the point that justification and everything that comes with justification comes to us through faith alone. So Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, is found on page 941 in the Bibles that are provided for you in the chairbacks. And if uh, you don't have a copy of Scripture, I encourage you to get one of those and open it up to page 941, and you'll find the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. And as I read these verses aloud for us, I want you to listen. Listen for the contrast that Paul makes between law and faith. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist." Christians are heirs of the world because of faith, not because of law. I want us to look at this argument Paul makes here under three headings. First of all, the, the basic thesis, the point that he makes in verse 13, that Christians are heirs of the world. It's a fascinating concept. 
It's an interesting argument that the Apostle Paul makes. It look, makes. Look again at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. That he would obtain the whole world by an inheritance. That's incredible. What's he getting at here? What's the point? Well, he's saying that the whole world is going to be bequeathed to Abraham because God promised that that's what he would do. An heir is a person who inherits possessions. We know that. And by the world, Paul's referring to that which is possessed by God that he's going to give to Abraham. Now, we all know how an inheritance works. A person who is the owner of possessions names you as an heir. And then at the appointed time, you are in line to inherit the possessions as your own. Have you heard about these Hungarian homeless brothers named Zolt and Giza Pilati? They were poor. So poor, they lived in a cave outside the city of Budapest. And in 2011, there were authorities that were sent from Germany to hunt them down because their maternal grandmother had died. They'd never even met her. And when they found these two brothers, they said, your inheritance from your grandmother is now yours. It's $7 billion. They didn't earn it. They didn't expect it. It was theirs by a gift, by an inheritance. Well, Paul says that God promised Abraham and his offspring that he would inherit the whole world. Now, this is fascinating that Paul would say this, because if you look at verse 13, and then if you just go back through the Old Testament, you will not find a verse in the Old Testament that says exactly what Paul says here. There's no specific reference that uses this language that makes this promise to Abraham in these terms. Well, what do we find when we read about God's dealings with Abraham in the Old Testament? Well, we can see that God promises Abraham to be his God and that Abraham and his offspring will be his people and that he makes three specific promises to him. First, he promises him the land of Canaan. I'm just going to read you some verses that come from Genesis 12 through 18, those chapters. But you can go back and read these chapters yourselves and see how the, uh, the Lord gives specific expressions to all three of these broad categories. He promises him the land of Canaan. In Genesis 12, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. I will give this land. Genesis 13, 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. He was in the land of Canaan. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Or Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God's promise to Abraham included real estate. It included, it included a land. Well, it also included, secondly, an incredibly large family. 
we've already heard references to this and what's been read, but hear it again, Genesis 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. How many are going to be the descendants of Abraham? Well, just count the dust and all the earth. That's how many. In Genesis 17, 4 through 6, he puts it like this. Or Genesis 15, 5, he puts it like this. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. How many stars in the heavens, in the universe? However many there are, he says, that's going to be analogous to how prosperous your progeny will be coming from you. Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, because I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means, father of nations. His name was changed to reflect this aspect of the promise. He goes on in that passage, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So God promised him a land. He promised him a family that would be innumerable. And then thirdly, he promised to make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That it would be through his seed, through his offspring, everybody in the world would be blessed. Verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Well, Paul, knowing this Old Testament history, takes all of these elements of the promise that God made to Abraham And he summarizes it for us in verse 13 of our text. He says, God promised to give the world to Abraham as an inheritance. Further, Paul teaches us in verse 13, this inheritance, this promise, comes in conjunction with Abraham's justification by faith. It didn't come because Abraham was so good. It didn't come because Abraham did anything. It came because Abraham trusted God. Look at verse 13 again. For the promise, he goes on to say, did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's not through law. Our translations say the law, but the definite article is not there. It didn't come through law. Law as a principle of obedience. Commandment. You've got to do something. You've got to earn it. You've got to... Fulfill it. In other words, the promise that God made to Abraham did not come to him as a business transaction. Abraham, if you do this, I'll do this. That's not the way it came. It came as sheer grace, promise that Abraham could believe or not believe. But through the faith by which he believed, he experienced the blessings that were promised. It's through the righteousness of faith, Paul says. In other words, God's promise is to give Abraham the world and that promise did not rest on Abraham's performance but on Abraham's believing. The same faith that God looked at and saw through that would be the means whereby he would declare Abraham righteous is the means whereby he would grant this promise. Paul goes on to say in verse 13 that Christians 
are the true children of Abraham, and we're heirs with him through faith. Do you see this? He refers to the promise being given to Abraham and his offspring. And his offspring. What does he mean by that? Well, if you just skim down to verse 16, you'll see that the promise is guaranteed to all his offspring. He said that's why it depended on faith, in order that it might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. He's talking about the people that he promised to give to Abraham as an incredibly large family. Abraham's family will be the recipients of this incredible promise to inherit the world. We're going to see this more clearly in verses 16 and 17 when we get there. And and God willing, when we look at the last verses of this chapter as well. But for now, let me just call attention to two important points. First, the promise to inherit the world is given to Abraham and to everyone who shares his faith. To everyone who is his spiritual child by faith. Everyone who because of faith is regarded as part of the offspring of Abraham. Secondly, this status to be a child of Abraham and the promise that goes with it to participate with him and being an heir of the world, it comes to everyone who by faith is united to Abraham through one offspring of Abraham. Or one seed, as some English translations render that world, which is a reference to Jesus. Now, how do we know this? Well, Paul makes this abundantly clear in his letter to the churches of Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, I would encourage you to read Galatians 3 as a wonderful commentary on what Paul is saying here in verses 13 through 17 of Romans 4. In Galatians 3, listen to what he writes in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural. Paul's making the point here that when God spoke it to Abraham, he spoke in the singular. That singular having specific reference to a person. But then, as he's going to argue, to everyone who was included in that person as well. So in Galatians 3.16, he says, It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And then he says, To your offspring who is Christ. Who is Christ. Paul tells us, Galatians 3.16, that the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring, primarily the one offspring, Jesus Christ, Christ who would come generations after being related to Abraham. So the seed by whom the world will be blessed and in whom the whole world will be inherited is Jesus Christ. But then in Galatians 3.29, Paul goes on and he says, and if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring and you're heirs according to the promise. You see this. The promise is made to Abraham and his offspring. And that primary reference is to Jesus Christ. But it includes everybody who's in Christ. Everybody who, like Abraham, will trust in Christ. This is an amazing promise. He promised that Abraham and his offspring would be the inheritors of the whole world. And that promise is fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. Christ is the recipient of the whole world. Because God has given this world to him. And all who are in Christ. Get in on that promise. How? How do we get in on the promise to be. The ones who inherit the world. Same way Abraham did. 
by faith, by believing, by taking God at His word, and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. Brothers and sisters, this this is mind-boggling to me. I feel like I've just seen a small slice of this, and it's more than I can fully comprehend, and I've struggled to try to figure out how to say it the best way that I could say it. The whole world is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It's our inheritance. Paul reminds the Corinthians of this. Whenever he needs to encourage them to stop acting like little babies in the church. Because they have all these petty little arguments and divisions. And and they're lining up under their favorite preachers. And Paul's thinking about this reality of what we have in Christ. He says, really? Really? And so in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, he writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. He's talking about the very point he's making in Romans the promised inheritance all things are yours if you're a Christian you need to hear God's word say to you brother sister all things are yours it belongs to you by inheritance Paul goes on in Romans 3 22 whether Paul Apollos Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you're Christ's and Christ is God's You see what he's saying to us? In Jesus Christ, the whole world is in front of us to inherit. We're heirs of God. And God created the world. And this world, because of Christ and His redemption of the world, belongs to the offspring of Abraham who have faith in Jesus Christ. What do you do with your stuff? What do you do with your possessions? You make it work for you, right? You make your stuff work for you. You make your life the way you want it to be through what you possess. Well, guess what? That's precisely what God is doing with your inheritance right now. He is using our inheritance in order to make our lives work the way He intends them to work. This, again, is a fascinating thought. This is the foundation of that incredible promise in Romans 8.28. We know that God is working all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. How How do we know that, Paul? Because all things are yours. All things are yours. So God is working all things together For your eternal welfare. What this means is God has conscripted every created thing in the universe in order to bring about your best interest in Christ. That's incredible. Everything. Your health. Your sickness. Your wealth. Your poverty. Your job, your unemployment, your weakness, your strength, your sleep, your sleeplessness. Everything God is working together for our good. And it's not just the things that we 
personally experienced. Brexit. God's working together for the good of His people. The last presidential election and the next one. God will work together for the good of His people. What happens to you today on your way home? What happens tomorrow in the stock market? What happens tonight in North Korea? The whole world, the whole world belongs to God. And God is taking that and holding that as an inheritance that will be bequeathed to His people at the appointed time because Jesus Christ came into this world and redeemed it by His life and death and resurrection. And in Him, with Abraham, we're heirs. I mean, let this truth sink in and cause you to think about your past. Everybody's got a past. Everybody's got a past, and all of us have things in our past that we're ashamed of. We regret. We wish weren't there. But brothers and sisters, when we think about our past in the light of this truth, in Christ, you are not a helpless victim. In Christ, the things you've done or that have been done to you do not define you. Rather, in Christ, you're a victor. In Christ, you're an overcomer. Because of Christ, you know that God is working together your past for your eternal welfare. How do we know that? Because God has promised us the world And everything in this world is under His sovereign control to work together for our good. So no matter where you've been, no matter where you are right now, in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting Christ, you can be sure that everything in your past, God has used to help you. And He's helping you right now. So let the truth of being an heir of the world through faith in Christ cause you to go back and just reevaluate the past. But then also, let it help you to think rightly about the future. The Lord is our strength. He's our salvation. Whom shall we fear? He's given us the world as our inheritance. We receive it not by keeping the law, but by trusting Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. You see what this means? We don't have to live with gloom and doom. We don't know what's going to happen. But one thing we do know, whatever happens is going to happen in the world that God created and works together for my good. So in faith, by trusting Christ, I can face the unknown future with confidence. Not in my ability to fix things. Not in my wisdom and shrewdness to make things work out. But in confidence that I'm an heir with Abraham Of this world. And that's the world that God is working together. For my good. Well Paul spends the rest of this chapter. Having made that point. In verses 14 and 17. Spends those verses proving this point. He does so first. By showing how this promise. Cannot be received by law. That's verses 14 and 15. And then he does it secondly. By showing how it must be received. Through faith. So Christians are heirs together with Abraham of the whole world. But then look at verses 14 and 15. Secondly, we see as he builds 
his case as he makes his argument. Christians are heirs of the world not because of the law. Verse 14, for if it is the, the adherents of the law who are the, to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So it's necessarily of faith. This promise is received by faith. We're heirs of the world by faith, not by law. Otherwise, faith would be null. That's what he says. If the promise comes to those who adhere to the law, faith is empty. It's vacated of any significance. It is useless. He goes on to say, if it comes by law, then the promise is void. If the promise comes by us doing what the law says, then the promise is worthless. Has no value. In other words, if the only way that God will get, will, will keep the promise of salvation he makes to Abraham and his offspring is by our keeping the law, then we're doomed. We have no hope. Because no one of us can keep the law the way it's designed to be kept. And if it's up to us, then we'll never receive the promise. The promise is empty. For 17 years, I coached a girls basketball team. And it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of lessons. And Every year, I try to make an impression on them about how it's much faster to make passes than it is to just dribble with the ball. And so every year I would start, start at one baseline and I would make a promise. I'd say anybody who can beat this ball that I'm holding to the other baseline, when I throw it, I will give you $100. It's a promise. I promised them every year. I never lost any money, of course, you know. <laughs> Why? Because it's an empty promise, because they can't run that fast. I can just throw the ball faster than they could run. And so the promise being fulfilled was dependent upon their performance, and they were never going to get that 100 bucks because they couldn't outrun a past basketball. Well, that's the argument Paul is making here. In the same way, I can never be justified by the law. I can't be Fulfill, I can't have a promise fulfilled to me if that promise depends upon my compliance with God's commandments. Sin has left us unable to meet the law's demands. Paul elaborates that point in verse 15. He says, because the law brings wrath. Because sin has rendered us all lawbreakers and the wages of sin is death, if we must relate to God on the basis of law, then we are without hope because there's not anybody you know who has kept God's law sufficiently nobody has measured up to the righteousness that God requires as revealed in his commandments Paul then adds that last statement that almost seems like an enigma he says if there were no law then there could be no transgression you couldn't violate the written commandment if there is no written commandment and if that were the case, there would be no wrath provoked against us. But because God has given us his law, our sin causes us to transgress it, and we do by nature incur his wrath. That's his point. So again, Paul emphasizes that there's no way that we can gain a right standing before God 
by our own efforts. In other words, the law cannot save you. If you're counting on God's promise to come to you, if you're counting on being saved, it will be by His grace that you and I do not deserve that comes to you through faith. Trusting Jesus. Believing Christ. Apart from that, if you're hoping in anything else, you're standing on quicksand. And you will sink under the weight of your own sin. So stop trying to get God to accept you by being good. Quit thinking that you can do better and that once you're better, God will like you. Quit trying to earn His favor by working harder. Rather, trust Him. Believe the promise. Take Him at His word. And when His word says that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, believe that God includes you in that promise. And trust Christ and be saved. Jesus is the only one that has fulfilled God's law. He's the only one who's paid the penalty of breaking the law and has done so satisfactorily. And it is only in Him that you can find God's favor coming to you. And the way you get in Christ is not by doing, it's by trusting, believing. So I just want to ask a question of you this morning. Are you trusting Jesus Christ as Lord? Is Christ your Lord? Can you honestly say, yes, I am staking my eternal destiny on Jesus? If so, then friend, you are heirs of this promise. God accepts you for Christ's sake. If not, if you can't say that, then whatever it is that you are trusting in, Hear God's word this morning to call you to renounce that, get off of that ground, and just throw yourself at the mercy of God in Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus. Bow to Him. Believe Him. He will save you. God will accept you for Christ's sake. It's not anything you have to do. Not a performance that you have to give. But rather, it is the simple acknowledgement that you're lost. You're without hope. But there's a Savior. And God has said, whoever trusts that Savior will be saved. And so you take God at His word and you believe. Believe. Right now. Right here. Trust Christ. And God will save you. On the authority of His word, I give you that assurance. So Christians are heirs of the world. And that cannot be because of law. But in verses 16 and 17, Paul goes on to say, thirdly, Christians are heirs of the world because of faith. It has to depend upon faith. That's what Paul's arguing for here. In verse 16, he says, it has to depend upon faith so that the promise may be all of grace. There's a relationship between faith and grace, just like there's a relationship between obedience and reward. You do your job at work and you get a paycheck. You obey your boss, you get a paycheck. But that's not the way salvation works. The promise of salvation that God has made is sure and it will infallibly 
be kept. He will save sinners from their sin. He will make people heirs of the world. And it's all by grace. How do you get in on it? By faith. You trust. You believe what He says. You accept the provision He's made in Christ. So when through faith we receive the blessings that Jesus earned, we are in no position to boast as if we ourselves had attained them through our own efforts. They come to us by pure grace. Salvation is by grace alone. That's why it can only be received through faith. We know it's a faith. Has to be. So that the promise may be given to all of Abraham's children by faith. Again, look at verse 16. He says that this is guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherent of the law. But also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who's the father of us all. Who will receive the promise that is made to Abraham? Not merely those who have the law, not just Jews, not just the circumcised who trust Christ, but to the uncircumcised, those who don't have the written law who trust Christ. Anyone who, like Abraham, trusts God. He's the father of us all. How? Through faith. He's the father of who? Those who have faith in God, what God said, whether Jew or Gentile. This is really a reiteration of the point that Paul makes in verses 11 and 12. To be a child of Abraham is to receive the promise God made to Abraham. And you do that by walking, living the way Abraham walked. Which was in faith. You trust God. You take Him at His word. That's what Abraham did. As Paul reminds us in verse 17. Just as he said when it was when God first came to Abraham. Look at it as he quotes Genesis 15.5, as it is written, <coughs> excuse me, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul gives us a theological interpretation of Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. God made Abraham a promise. Abraham believed God. And as Paul explains here, he believed God as the God who gives life to the dead. He believed God as the God who calls into existence the things that don't exist. And he says all of this took place in the presence of God. It was before God. God came to Abraham. And before God, Abraham believed Him. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15 for just a moment. I just want to read a few of these verses to you. Genesis 15, it's found on page 10, if you're using the Bible provided. Because this is what Paul has in mind when he writes what he does in our text. Genesis 15, listen to verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He'd already told Abram then that he was going to have a child, a son, and from him would flow these incredible blessings and these promises that he made that we heard about earlier from Genesis 12. And Abram says, it's not happening. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4, This man shall not be your heir, 
Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse 5. And he brought him outside. And he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see what Paul's doing? Paul, in our text, wants us to recall this scene. He wants us to think about what happened on that night when God came to Abraham. You think about Abraham, he's well in ages now, in his 80s at least. Way past bearing children. His wife is way past the age of childbearing. And God's given him this promise that he's going to have a son. And Abraham's saying, God, it didn't happen. I don't, I don't have a son. I don't know how this is going to work out. So he and his wife, medically speaking, with regard to becoming parents, were dead. They didn't have the ability to procreate any longer. And yet God promises, no, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be your own son. And then he says, Abraham, come out of the tent. Come out of the tent. Look at the stars. Count them. Count how many stars are in the heavens. That's how many children are going to come into your family throughout history. And the text says that Abraham believed God. He believed him. Why? Because he trusted God to be the God who gives life to the dead. And calls into existence things that do not exist. He knew that nothing is impossible with God. And so like a child with his father. He just took God at his word. God said it. I'm going to believe him. Because he's God. This is what it means to walk in the footsteps of faith like Abraham. It's to be a child of Abraham. To trust God like Abraham. Do you trust God? Are you trusting God? Do you trust him when he tells you what he says in this text? Brothers and sisters, that because of Jesus Christ, we are heirs of the world. The whole world is our inheritance. Do you believe that? We must believe it. You know, I don't understand people getting hung up over a narrow strip of real estate over in Palestine. Thinking that this is what God's promised and this is all God's promised to be the inheritance of the descendants of Abraham. I'm glad that the Jews have their own nation state. I'm I'm for that. But my vision is much larger than a narrow piece of land over in the Middle East. It's the whole world. The whole world belongs to God's people and it belongs to us by faith. That's what God was teaching Abraham. That's why we read in Hebrews 11 where Abraham lived in Canaan, the land of promise, as a stranger, a sojourner. Why? He knew. This isn't it. This isn't all. But rather, he looked for that city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. (laughs) He was looking for an eternal home. He was looking for the whole heavens, the whole earth that would be provided for him as an heir of God. We must believe this. All things are ours. Brothers and sisters, right now in Christ, all things are ours. Because God has promised it to us and He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. We know that about Him. More than that, we know He's the God who raises the dead. Abraham learned that. 
But we see it more clearly than he could have seen it because we have a testimony of Jesus Christ who was crucified, buried, and then came back to life never to die again. 2,000 years later, he's, he's still alive. He's the God who raises the dead. So if he tells me that I'm going to inherit the world, I'm going to believe it. It's happening. This world will be mine and all the people of God together with Abraham. On the appointed day, when Jesus returns to the earth, makes all things new, He's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and that will belong to those who are His by faith. Now, there are many people today that don't believe this promise. They think that you and I, by believing it, are fools. They're skeptics, they're mockers, they ridicule. They say, oh, you're looking forward to the day when Jesus will return. Yeah, right. People have been looking forward to that for 2,000 years. It's all a pipe dream. Pie in the sky. Opiate of the people. You bought into that? Really? Well, listen, those skeptics have been around for 2,000 years too. They were saying that in Peter's day. That's why he writes what he does at the end of his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me just read to you. Some of his words there, he says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So, two thousand years, two days to the Lord. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you're an unbeliever here today, you know why one of the reasons Jesus hadn't come back? is to give opportunity to people like you to repent of your sin and trust Jesus. Every day that you wake up is another opportunity to trust Jesus Christ. Peter goes on, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then he concludes with this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, that's the inheritance that awaits us. Let's believe it. Let's believe it. And let's live by faith, understanding that God has given us this promise. It is going to happen. It comes to us by sheer grace. And as we look to Jesus Christ, have our hope in Him, and take God at His word, that this is our future. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for revealing this glorious truth to us today. Help us to live as heirs of the world. Because you're the God who created this world and in Christ Jesus. We're joint heirs with him and heirs of the living God. Seal to our hearts truth from your word today. For Jesus' sake, amen.